I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 65. So, uh, as we discussed, might be the case, last episode, uh, Josh is not here. He is uh, the assistant director on a movie that is taking basically 12 hours a day for three weeks, so uh, I did not want to try and force him to come and do this. So, uh, but we do have a a guest host. That's not what it's going to be. It's just a guest. Um... But before we get to him, I did want to make uh, a couple of announcements real quick. Uh, number one is, if you go to the website, you'll see uh, on the side there's something that says, Take the Survey. Uh, the survey is basically just about uh, listener demographics. Uh, I'm sort of interested... I- I- I've speculated so long on like how many Christians listen to this show as opposed to how many uh, atheists or, you know... Uh, how many men versus women and age groups and all that sort of thing. And so I decided uh, to actually put a, put a poll in the field, uh, as they would say on the West Wing and probably elsewhere. And so um, if, you've got the, if, you know, if you've got the time, it'll take about two minutes. Um, and if you are a regular listener of the show, head on over to the website, click on Take the Survey, and fill that out. Uh, you don't have to uh, log in or anything. You don't have to set up, uh, you know, you don't have to register or anything like that. So do that, and it would uh, it would help me a great deal. So that's the first thing. Second thing, um, and this, I don't know how many people this will affect, but um, I have found a way to embed uh, the episodes into the blog posts themselves. Uh, I'm not sure how many people have been listening straight from the website, but you know that if you click on the uh, the thing that says click here to listen, it'll take you to a completely separate page that's basically all white. Um, I have embedded a player into uh, the blog posts of the last, like, ten episodes so that you can listen, but you don't have to not necessarily navigate away from the page. So I don't know if that's something that uh, bothered you, but uh, I have solved a problem that nobody thought needed solving but anyway so uh well let's bring in our uh, our guest he's he's actually uh, his first appearance was fairly recent uh back in april he joined us for our episode about the proposition mm. he's back again it's jeff newberg i'm here yes jeff how you it. doing i made it Phew. uh pretty good pretty good all right um so have there been any new developments career or personal since your last appearance? Yeah, there's been, um, uh, I, I should probably mention the big one is personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm not going to talk about it. Okay. Uh, JK, uh, it's personal, um, in that, uh, it's not business. Uh, my, my wife, she's preggers and she's going to give birth rounds about February. All right. Uh, and that's very exciting. I hope slash. it's the 25th then we'll share a birthday. As in January 25th. Oh, February 25th. Yeah, I don't think it's going to stay in there that long. All right. Uh, it's early, early February. Um, 
and uh, got a couple episodes of Weeds on Showtime. I saw that. Which I don't have either. Um, do you have Showtime? No. Yeah, no one does. I don't uh, think they've aired yet, as far as I can tell. What, the new season? Mine right. haven't. Your mine, ha- yours mine, haven't. Mine right. air on September 2nd and September 9th. Okay. If people want to tune in. It's a very fun character. I, I don't think I can describe the character. I think it would be too much of a spoiler. Okay. But a very fun character. Uh, and then, what else is shaken? Um, it, it looks like I'm making a short film with a bunch of my, uh, a, a bunch of old collaborators in other fields, like mm-hmm. music and visual arts, stuff I used to do and do occasionally now, uh, that is very much tied into the themes of the movies we're going to be talking about today. Oh boy. So, uh, that would be a great transition, but I've got, uh, I've got more, qu- <laughs> more oh, no, questions that's right. for you. That's quite all right. Um, but uh, so with weed, so you're on a couple episodes, yep. but you know, just the one character is mm-hmm. not a law and order where they brought you back. Uh, right. And they don't know. do that. Unfortunately for actors, they don't do that anymore. That's too bad. That was yep. If, when you're a law and order fan like myself and you and you have uh, like the first five seasons on DVD, as I do, uh, you know, you watch the first season, you're like, oh, this look at this perp. And then he shows up <laughs> later as a uh, as like a defense attorney. And yeah. and my first instinct is like, wow, that. That criminal really got his act together. Oh, no, it's a different character. I got it. Okay. It's really too bad they don't do that anymore, man. They but did hey. it on the A-Team all the time as well. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I don't remember that. Yeah, they would fight like the same guys, but different characters. Oh. Like this guy who was, you know, who did have like this corrupt construction company now, you know, has a drug ring or See, something See, that was like the good that. old days. There were fewer actors. They like <laughs> kind of needed them. If you found somebody good, you had yeah. to keep using them. Now there's a billion of them and they're a dime a dozen, so might as well just spread it around. I'd say that's about right. Yep. But that's uh, that was a tangent based entirely on a little uh, joke I was making. Uh, so two episodes, same character. So uh, mm-hmm. clearly they thought uh, the character is important enough to be brought back. It's not like a one yeah, that scene was fun. guy. That was fun. Um, and uh, and I, I've asked. I think I asked you this a little bit with uh, what was it? Uh, uh, Criminal Minds. Mm. But um, with Weeds, which is, it's a, I think, a smaller cast, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I, I th- maybe uh, maybe not more of a cult following, because I know Criminal Minds really has a... It's just know. an entirely different, yeah, the, the way it's produced and the way it's written. You know, obviously, you've got comedy versus drama, and you've got cable versus network. That right. Those are some pretty big dynamic differences. Um, and then... Yeah, it's it's much less of in a weird way. It's less of an ensemble piece. Hmm. Like I, you know, I didn't interact with two out of the three main main actors at all because I'm entirely tied up in one of those three actors' plot lines. Yeah. So it was just just us, and that's that's sort of like you're, you're not going to do that as much on sort of a crime show where there's this this team. Mm. Um. Anyway. All right. Well, that's that was sort of what I what I was going to to mm-hmm. ask was do, you know you get to work with uh, because Weeds has some fairly heavy hitters on it. Not to imply Criminal Minds does not. I had a I had a blast. I I got to work and hang out with you know pretty much exclusively Kevin Nealon, who I'm a big fan of. So that sounds fun. great. It was great because um, that that's where I was headed. Because uh, I enjoy Kevin Nealon a great deal. Yeah. Um, I think he is an underrated comedic actor and uh, stand-up comic. Mm. Um, I enjoyed him on on Saturday Night Live, and I 
my my uh, wife watches Weeds, um, and I watched the first season, and I would uh, dip in every once in a while as she was watching the later seasons, and um, and I found that it getting more and more dramatic, and mm-hmm. as she got deeper and deeper into the you know the drug stuff, um, but the one consistent. Uh, comedic element that you could yeah. always count on was Kevin Nealon, yep. and uh, and I always remember enjoying him. So is and you he, should feel vindicated. Super nice guy. I he seems like you like on set one day, like there were all these people hanging around, and it was like his high school buddy and that buddy's family <laughs> were like out visiting L.A. and just hanging out on set all day. He's That's just awesome. like a super friendly cool guy it does seem like a, just in general like a fun show to work on everybody does even even yeah. in moments of drama everybody seems to be enjoying themselves no it's great like so. the dynamic on the show is like you know it's what eight yeah it's this is the eighth and final season oh i didn't know it was the final one it is it okay. is uh so i won't be getting any more episodes oh, they won't be bringing bad. me back anymore all right um it's uh you know it it's at that point when you've been working with people that long it's either pure hell or just it's a family, and on that mm-hmm. show, it's definitely okay. the latter. Well, that's great. That's uh, good for you. I'm glad. I'm always. I'm always glad when uh, you know my guests are. Uh, they're on the rise. Things are going well, and not merely because then I can exploit their fame, <laughs> uh, and uh, hopefully, and hopefully get uh, some Google hits out of you. So, um, <laughs> um, so we are going to move on. I did want to specify uh, something real quick. Um, I don't know how much the mics are picking it up, but uh, my air conditioner is running. Um, North Hollywood, y'all. Yeah. I usually try to keep it off, but it's August now, mm-hmm. and uh, so I got to keep it going. So if that is distracting to you, uh, I apologize. I'm trying to make sure that it does not blow directly into the mic. So before... Uh, but you can't keep Jeff Newberg from doing that. <gasps> oh. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. Oh, my gosh. It's, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know what it... Okay. Yeah, it's Qu- just... Yeah. Uh, quick thing. I don't know what it is about my jackass friends. Uh, that's not including you up until now. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. People seem so uh, fascinated, like like sort of a, a kid in a, in a toy store or something like that. They just have to mess with everything. They think the idea of having a mic in front of them is fun. So like Sean will meow into the mic for no particular reason. Uh, people will tap on the mic because they think they do it just to bother me. I like the like, Sean guy. I want to meet the Sean guy. Oh, go, go and listen to my Avengers episode. He's been All on right. three episodes now. But uh, but yeah, he was trying to communicate with my cat. So, uh, so because these are my friends, they do this to bother me, mm. not recognizing people are going to hear this. Yeah. They're going to hear you blowing into the mic. But that's all right. You well, know, I, you know, I stop pretty reasonably quick. That's Try not true. to do it over your lines, you know. I appreciate that. And we do have lines. This is all scripted. All scripted. <laughs> oh, man. I can't even imagine trying to, like, transcribe this, much less actually write it. Well, we'll have the intern do it. Absolutely. Oh, I wish I had an intern in life, not unlike uh, Kramer with Kramerica Industries, where it's just somebody who makes my life just a little bit easier. Not that transcribing the show would make my life easier, but I would like to have a trans. It's the holy grail of, like, for me, that's, I've had a a couple friends who got famous, and that's, like, the one thing that's attractive, personal assistant. That's all I want. I, I don't need the big house or the cars, but personal assistant, first thing. Do you think that I feel like the temptation to abuse them? I don't mean verbally. I don't mean like tear into them, but just recognize like things that you would never do suddenly become an option. 
It's Wait, like, oh, I don't want to take time, take the time to do that. And it's like, not my time. Go ahead, go get that for me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sure you're right. I just can't think of a concrete example of the thing. Because if I could think of a concrete example, I, I think I could be like, okay, well, I'll make sure not to do that. Yeah. But. That's the problem, you know. Once uh, you find you're right in the middle of it, yeah. abusing this kid. Yeah. And he has to be like, you're welcome, sir. Uh, but they, I mean, they get compensated. Like, if you're actually doing it. Oh, yeah. Those people get paid a lot because it's a terrible job. Awful. You're constantly on call and you probably end up working about 60 hours a week. So generally speaking, they're they're pretty well paid. And I guess it can be, I guess it can be like a stepping stone to other things. But man, oh, yeah, oh man, yeah, that yeah, seems like. I've, I've known guys who have used it as a stepping stone who are now producers. It's crazy. I saw Swimming with Sharks. I know it's, it can oh, be yeah, pretty that's rough. that's right. I haven't seen that since <laughs> I was a kid. Yeah, that, that to me was like one of the best movies ever. And now I realize like it's a little overwrought. Yeah. But uh, okay. Okay. Moving on, Moving on to the subject of uh, this week. Yeah, it's not a weekly show, but th- this episode. Um, so, a little bit of background. So, a few years ago on my other podcast, Battleship Pretension, uh, my co-host David and I were going down our list of the, our ten favorite movies of the year. Uh, mine was The Visitor, by uh, directed by Thomas McCarthy, which I talked about uh, on the show a few weeks ago. Uh, I guess a couple months ago now. Um David, more so than, that was 2008, so more than like Wally or The Dark Knight or movies that I knew he really loved, uh, top of the list was a movie called Rachel Getting Married. And I knew, that, and it's directed by Jonathan Demme, who is probably most noted for directing The Silence of the Lambs. And I know that uh, David was a fan of his. And, uh, and Rachel Getting Married sounded interesting to me. I knew that Anne Hathaway was getting some buzz here and there. And so I thought, uh, oh, that's, that surprises me a little bit. And, uh, but then I went and watched the movie, and I th- was blown away by it. it. It's such a fascinating film. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like it would fit with uh, Jonathan Demme's overall um, style. Over. Yeah, I guess so. David uses that word too, and I don't like it because it's. Uh, I don't know if what I just did could be described as using. That's true. More, more like Guessing? touching the corpse of that word with a stick. <laughs> yeah, see that that word. I I know it. I know what it means, but I don't like <laughs> to say it because I'm not totally sure if I'm ever going to pronounce it right. Because like I'm not totally sure where that R is supposed to go, or if I'm even supposed to say it. Yeah, I don't think you are. I don't know. Those blasted French. I don't speak French. <laughs> and so. Um, so yeah, I watched it and I was blown away by it. Um, it. Just, it's such an emotionally raw film, and it's done in a style that you wouldn't necessarily associate with the guy that did Silence of the Lambs, which is very much a genre film done in the style well, of like a horror movie seen or a thriller. His concert movies, y- yes, I mean, right. It seems like a movie that is so much more of a concert film. I mean, what the hell are all the musicians doing in it? Um, well, which is we'll which get to that. super distracting to me. We'll get to that later. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think it really fits in much better with that stuff, which is the majority of his work yeah. than with his features. And he, uh, yeah, it, it does have a, you are there mm-hmm. immediacy to it, uh, that I think works great. Like I've gone to a lot of weddings 
I've been at my own wedding. Like it, they're they're very chaotic. Even it, I don't even mean in a negative way. Yeah, they're just it's constant buzzing activity, mm. and the and of course if you're going to have somebody in the midst of the preparations for a wedding, it sort of makes sense that you would want it to have that sense of immediacy and kind of a, a manic energy at times. And uh, and I don't think I'd ever uh, really seen that before with a with a in a film that's about a joyous occasion, but still nonetheless kind of awkward at times and all that. Um, so I really liked that. But we'll we'll get to more of that uh, in general. Um, but I guess I'll. I'll outline the plot first and then we'll get to uh, our, our reactions to the film I've already said that I enjoyed it quite a bit but spoiler uh, alert spoiler alert I guess this is you know here's the thing <laughs> I've said to the listeners but I'll explain to you I got I always wonder how much detail to go into with yeah. uh, the plot because it seems strange like this is an episode basically devoted to this film yeah I, I have to assume that yeah. people who yeah. haven't seen it aren't going to be listening but listeners have said, no, I'll listen to it if I haven't seen it. It's like, well, then are you okay? Like, do you not want me to spoil it then? And, peop- and people have said, like, you know what? I recognize that it's on me, huh. so I- I'm okay with spoilers. And it's like, okay, that's fine. Well, it's not like it's an action movie. Right. Like, I don't feel like the plot is what spoils a movie like Rachel getting married. Right. You know, it's like you, the whole point to see it is the execution, and we can't exactly describe that in words. Right. I don't know. And so, yeah, there are not a lot of like revelations that come out or anything like that. It's it's all basically uh, it's all based on relationships and that sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, uh, the 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 basic story and and it's not a plot driven film, so this is not going to take very long. <laughs> um, Anne Hathaway stars as a uh, a woman named Kim who is in rehab. She's had trouble with any number of drugs and uh, and alcohol and that sort of thing. And so uh, she's in rehab, but she's getting out for a couple of days to go to her sister's wedding. And so that's basically what she does. But you realize, but Kim is not a very likable person. She has a huge chip on her shoulder. She is standoffish around her family, and she is just a. Uh, it's it's. She may not be likable, but I find her to be sympathetic, but that's a discussion that we'll, we'll have uh, a little bit later. And so uh, arguments break out between she and her sister because her sister has not chosen her as her maid of honor. Um, her uh, her father tries to keep everything uh, together and just and there's just general meltdowns and, and that sort of thing, all in the midst of people trying to be happy and all the... All the elements are there for this to be a happy, fun occasion. It really seems like it's Kim that is sort of ruining things. But it's not so much that she's ruining things as her presence brings stuff out that's that's there. Stuff that people keep inside. Now it comes out. And maybe that's a good thing. Mm. Um, But, uh, and... We don't see this, but it is a very palpable thing. And this is, among other things the the big thrust of the story is that uh so there's kim and her sister rachel and they had a younger brother at one point but rachel uh while she was caring for him kim what was that kim Kim. i'm sorry kim thank you while kim was uh caring for um the the kid as a uh as a an infant or a, a toddler um 
she was high and she uh, got in a car accident with him in the back seat and slammed into a river and he drowned. And so, you know, that's a pretty big uh, plot development. It's a it's a big plot development, but from a character standpoint, I mean, like like Kim is clearly carrying this with her, and that's why she clearly feels standoffish with her family is that she assumes, probably rightfully so, that that's what her family sees when they look at her. Is mm-hmm. this is the girl who, due to her drug problem, killed a member of our family, and so that's where a lot of the a lot of the uh, conflict comes from, and it's just the characters dealing with that tragedy, which at this point is years old. That tragedy in the midst of what is supposed to be a, a fun and happy occasion. So that's the uh, that's the basic story. I've been talking far too long. Okay. Jeff, sorry guys, I we we've got a we've got a complicated relationship. Me and we sure do. In that, <laughs> I don't like Jeff, <laughs> but I need to have him on the show. Oh. Because his, as I said before, his star is on the rise. Yeah, so, so. much, so much star power. <laughs> Shield your eyes. So, um, Jeff, what did you think about about this film? Um, I I saw it when it came out because um, it's my kind of movie: the mm-hmm. artsy fartsy, shaky camera, um, etc. Um, which I don't know. You, I, I think you can probably tell from my tone. I, I I'm sort of uh, bagging on because I don't know if it is still my kind of movie, hmm. or I don't know if I still have a kind of movie. Um, and and because of that, I, I I get I get like simultaneously uppity and sort of judgmental about sort of the very self consciously quote indie vibe mm-hmm. of such a film as this. Uh, you know, the whole thing's handheld. Um, which, you know, I think is definitely the right choice for that movie. Um, but, you know, other stuff in it, like, you know, the use of non-professional actors really gets gets to me sometimes. Sometimes I think it's brilliant because um, I hate actors, too. And if you don't have to use them, you shouldn't. But, like, there's just certain things that you need an actor for. And mm. as much as I love, um, man, what's that guy's band's name? I don't recall. Uh, their big hit was uh, Wolf Like Me, TV on the radio. Yeah. The the dude that Rachel is getting married to is the singer from TV on the radio who, uh, spoiler alert, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to work that in at least 12 That's times. Fine. I have a deal with the devil. Um, he He's not so good at the acting thing. He's charismatic uh, when he's singing or playing music in the film, which happens a couple times. That's mm-hmm. really cool. Um, and he's an interesting, funny guy. But sort of when there's like, you know, there's a lot of times where he doesn't know what to do. Um, kind of yeah. like Alec Baldwin. What do I do with my hands? Um, and <laughs> Alec Baldwin is Jack Donaghy. As Jack Donaghy. Not, not, not Alec not Baldwin, Baldwin, the actor. actor right. It's like, hey, have you, have you noticed that Alec Baldwin doesn't seem to know what he does with his hands? They've just merged at this point. They're one of the same. That's kind of like true. Tracy Morgan Jordan. Um, <laughs> Morgan Jordan. Um, and then there's, I mean, and it gets worse. There's like Fab Five Freddy is in the movie. Mm. And I, you know, I thought he was... I don't, I, I don't know where I thought he was, but Anna DeVere Smith is in mm. the movie, and that was interesting because she's bad at acting in a different way. Okay. Like, she, it's not that she doesn't know how to emote, because she does, but at one point, the camera pans to her during a really emotional scene, like, just at the end. She, they, mm-hmm. The camera hasn't hit her at all during this very emotional argument, and then it pans over, and we see her, and she is, you know, she's crying, and she's upset, 
and she's doing it in the like the least attractive possible way, like that actors have been trained out of doing. Like, oh, mm-hmm. don't do that. Nobody wants to see her face like that. And her face is squinched up. It looks like a, a balloon deflating. Anyway, that's a bit of a, di- a digression. But it's just to say, sometimes use a real actor. Uh, sorry, huge digression. We should just edit that all out. Um, but I'm pro. I'm pro this movie. I like this mm-hmm. movie a lot. I'm a... I'm not generally speaking an Anne Hathaway fan. I mean, I think she's good, but mm-hmm. she doesn't float my boat in particular. In this movie, she does. I, I really like what she does. Her her sister, I forget the actress's name, but I pretty uh, much always... Rosemary DeWitt. Oh, yes, the notes, the notes. It's right there, buddy. Rosemary DeWitt. Uh, I always like her. Um, and I think she's probably most notable for being Mad on Men. Mad Men. Yeah, Mad Men season one. Yeah. Um, I... Um, I think whatever whatever you'll say whatever I'll say against sort of the the self conscious uh, aesthetic choices of the movie like they really capture some great stuff like the the dishwashing sequence like yeah. I, it it doesn't uh, it doesn't happen if you shoot the movie or, or any of the wedding itself the wedding day it doesn't happen if you shoot the movie a different way than they did mm-hmm. and um, yeah so like. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, that's, um, that's all we got, guys. Yeah, I will, uh, I'll, I'll speak to some of your points. First off, I think Anna DeVere Smith is pretty good um, in this movie. And, yeah, uh, no, that, and, I, and she uh, would show up regularly on the West Wing as the uh, is that right? National Was Security the Advisor. Yeah. That's so weird. And, uh, and I remember I, I liked her quite a bit, and I liked some of her choices in, uh, in Rachel Getting Married. They might be her choices, but they also might just be script choices and, and directing choices just the idea of like having her still be she's she plays okay kim and rachel's parents are divorced and her husband and, and uh, their father has gotten married to anna anna devere smith and so you know she's their stepmother if they would ever if they use that term um and the fact that she you know she loves these people yeah but there is something about being not directly related to the people involved. She's still emotionally invested, but she still has to hold herself back. Um, and I've I've talked with uh, I've talked with people who, like for example, um, are you know like a, a step parent and that sort of thing. And they say like I can be there for like encouragement. I can be there, you know, if they need somebody to talk to. But, like, when it comes to, like, chiming in with how things should be, I have a hard time doing that because mm-hmm. I feel like I'd, I haven't quite earned a place at the table. And uh, and that's what I got from, from her character. And, and I think she did what was required of her. However, the, and I, you know what? I should have written down the name of the guy who plays uh, Sydney, Rachel's uh, Ubi, fiance. Ubi Ndumbuobe. I think I Something think that's like pretty that. darn close. Yeah, it's. I mean, I know it sounds like I'm making it up, but that's you could pronounce it perfectly right. It's reasonably it sounds, close. Yeah, he's not that. He's he's not that great. Mercifully, he's not in it that much. He's not required to be in it that much. And there are moments that are really charming because he's a really charming guy. Yeah, but yeah, and that's you know it's. Uh, I, I will uh, note real quick that um, I'll use this as a transition into other things. Uh, it is written by Jenny Lumet. Daughter of Sidney Lumet. I was wondering about that. Saw that last name. Yeah. And the thing about Sidney Lumet, he directed, he directed a, a lot of my favorite films. Uh, 
I believe, let's see, let me think about my top ten. I believe he directed my fifth and third favorite movies, mm-hmm. uh, Network and 12 Angry Men. He mm-hmm. also did Dog Day Afternoon. He did, I can't even, he did The Pawn Broker. The Verdict. The Verdict, uh, yes. Uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead most recently. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the, he's done so many, and I'm sure I'm missing a notable one in there somewhere. Oh, you're missing probably. We're both missing like five. I yeah, mean, he's yeah. He's he's a great director, and he uh, and there's a real rawness to the types of performances that he can get out of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think probably Dog Day Afternoon is maybe the best example of that. Just a real like, it just feels very gritty and real. Um, now, the reason I bring that up is because uh, in college, I took a class, uh, I took a couple classes like this where they, where the filmmaker, the, the, I'm sorry, the instructor would compare the works of two different filmmakers. Mm. And so I took a class about Sidney Lumet because I was a fan of his. Uh, but, and I had heard of the companion filmmaker, John Cassavetes. But I had, Maybe but at that time, favorite. he's one of my favorite directors of all time. Uh, at the time, I'd only heard of him. I had not seen any of his stuff. And then I saw his stuff, and I, I, I was flabbergasted. He is a director that, if you haven't seen his stuff, first off, prepare yourself. Because he's not... I won't say he's inaccessible, but he's not your usual thing mm-hmm. uh, as a director. Um, he's not experimental. He deals with characters. He deals with the world we live in. But his whole thing... I, I don't remember... I don't remember if this is a quote that he said or a quote that somebody said about him, but I love it, which is, you know that moment when you're with friends and you're enjoying each other's company and you're making, you know, you're making jokes with each other and you, and you say the same joke a few times. And then there's that one moment when you say the joke one too many times and people still laugh, but it's not as big of a, big of a laugh. And all of you, without saying it, you all acknowledge the joke is done. That's the moment that John Cassavetes wants to capture on film yeah. because that is vulnerability. That's that's raw emotion. Uh-huh. That's people being exposed. And if you think in those terms, that's very much what what he does. And that's actually the vibe that I got from Rachel getting married. Oh yeah, like the wedding speech. Yeah, the, the wedding toast oh. that Kim gives to Rachel. Like it's very oh. it's, you keep looking away. Yeah. And you're at that table, you know, the, the way it's shot and the way it's acted, you very much feel like you're at that table. And I don't know what your wedding was like, but I made the mistake of opening the mic up to whichever one of my drunk friends wanted to say anything. And boy, did they. And so, yeah, it was it was like a flashback. I cannot speak uh, about this because this is my show and it's entirely possible that some of the one of the people that Ooh. I would talk one of the two people I would talk about might hear it. Mm. Um, yeah, you know what? I'll say one of them because it. It sounded awkward, and then it turned okay. Okay. So I'll say this. Um, So my wife's father stood up, and he gave what I later discovered, because when your last name is Smith, you have no cultural connections. (laughs) And so what I later discovered was an Irish toast. Mm. I wasn't the only one that didn't know this toast, by the way, because you heard the air get sucked out of the room. He starts with, here's to your coffins. Whoa. That's weird, right? Yeah, that's intense. Okay. And then and then the rest of the toast is may they be made of 100-year-old oak and may I plant those oak, those trees tomorrow. Mm. And it's like, okay, that turns out, you know, long ultimately long life. 
Yeah, it's but man, it's funny you, in an Irish way. It's, <laughs> isn't it so very Irish? Man, um, but it's uh, and so it wound up being like this. And so when when he said that, everybody in the room was like, "Oh, that's really sweet." But in that moment, everyone's like, "Is this like an about Schmidt moment where he finally not that." Warren Schmidt ever actually says what he's thinking, but that moment's just like, uh oh, the father in law is not merely not only does he not approve of this, but he wishes us dead. Yeah. Um, so it was a moment of extreme awkwardness. And then there was another speech that I won't get into. But uh but yeah, and so so that one turned out well. But the this the speech in Rachel Getting Married does not turn out well. And so so the style of Rachel Getting Married with just like you you feel like you are a guest at the wedding witnessing a train wreck and witnessing like family drama that's like you're not a part of the family so you feel like you shouldn't be seeing this yeah it's like when you watch it's like if if a married couple starts bickering in front of you and you're like ah well and, and you've got your you've got your stand-ins in those scenes mm-hmm. uh like like the husband to be is not a part of this family dynamic right the the quote stepmom like they're they're sitting there going through a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. And uh yeah, it's um it toes that line really well. That line of showing enough to put you there and make you personally uncomfortable without without really losing you. I mean, you put another 30 seconds onto that wedding toast and it might it, it it'll probably lose me. Yeah, it's that's yeah. That's the key. Is like, and that's a function of the writing and the directing and mm-hmm. the performance. But um, just knowing when to end it, because at a certain point it becomes unbearable. And while I'm all for a film that engages me emotionally, even if it's an emotion I don't want to feel, I'm all for that. But after a certain point, it's like this has become torturous. Now, have you seen the celebration? I have not. It's uh, is it Swedish or is it Danish? It's um. It's a similar similar thing that just goes way, way, way further. Uh, it starts with a toast that gets completely out of hand. And, the, and it's this weekend that was supposed to be a celebration that because the content of the toast becomes the opposite. Um, anyway, it's you all should see it. It's amazing, but it is completely ruthless and uh, <laughs> pretty dark. <laughs> Just, I like. I do. I am. I. I am a, a, that attracted there. to any movie that is described as ruthless. It is. It is ruthless. Um, it's ruthless with its characters. Characters, you say? Okay. <laughs> see, now I'm going to use a word you said to get us into a discussion of the characters. Um, oh, uh, but actually, now that I think of it, before that, I did want to mention. Uh, you mentioned the music in the film. Mm. Um, Various, uh, a lot of the characters are like musicians or involved with the music industry in some way. And so this is a, so the people involved in the wedding are very, as uh, Jeff said earlier, artsy fartsy, Mm. which is a phrase that everyone should use all the time. Hoity toity as well. Oh, oh. they're a bit hoity toity. (laughs) And, uh, and maybe a little, uh, at times insufferable. It's, (laughs) It's <laughs> yeah. it does sort of have this uh, hippie commune uh, feel yeah. to it. Yeah. But it also does genuinely feel like a celebration that people are genuinely thrilled for this couple to to come together and 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 pledge their lives to each other and and so music is regularly playing and it does if if we were not privy to all the family drama this really would feel like a fun and exciting 
event to be a part of. I and think. it is. I don't want to mischaracterize it as uh, an unmitigated train wreck mm-hmm. because the balance that the filmmakers strike is that pushing in toward that really crazy family dynamic stuff and pulling back out uh, for the celebration stuff um, in a way that keeps you engaged and keeps you hopeful. Uh, and just aesthetically, I, I uh, there's a French film called, uh, uh, is it Le Fils, The Sun? Mm, yes. Have you seen this film? Yes, I have. The, you know, no music. Zero. Right. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a bold choice when mostly movies have wall-to-wall sound. Uh, and I, I really love how much music there is in this movie, but it's all in a sense on screen. Mm-hmm. You're, I think I, I'd have to watch it again, but I think it's true to say you're never hearing music that's quote soundtrack. It's always being played by someone who's either in the frame or just off frame. Right. You are. It really is putting you in the same position as the characters. You know, when I mean, when we hear music. In a movie, we don't think about it, but that's basically the filmmaker saying, like, you are separate from these characters. You are outside the events watching it, and this is how you should be feeling or how I would like you to feel or whatever. But with a movie like this, you don't hear anything that the characters don't hear. Mm. Um, and that's kind of exciting and kind of refreshing, and it does kind of add to that that feeling of you can't get away from the awkwardness Mm. um but i think it adds i think it's just uh it adds a real vitality to it um and i will use that to get into the the characters and the performances um so this i think is the film that made anne hathaway at change her career um before this she was kind of seen as like kind of this poppy somewhat shallow sweetheart and not that anybody was saying she was a bad actress or anything, but people did not think of her as a great actress. And so the casting of her in this... Vi- she plays Kim, and uh, the casting of her in the role of this self-hating, uh, recovering addict um, who's at war with her family and herself, that seemed like an odd choice. But I think it works really well because... Well, for a number of reasons. One is that Anne Hathaway pulls it off, but also... The character, uh, Anne Hathaway, as an actress, I think, has a pretty good amount of on-screen charisma, no matter what part she is playing. And so we needed some of that, and a certain degree of charm. We needed that when dealing with this character, because otherwise we would just hate her. Yeah. We need somebody that can make us, who can find the lovable things about her in the performance. Yeah, like, I mean, I think, again, I think of the wedding toast. I don't think you get through the the stuff she says in that wedding toast mm-hmm. without um, without charm. Uh, and I don't mean she's putting it on because she's not. I mean, like, inherently in the performer. Yeah. I don't think it works. And then, over overarchingly, I, I still don't find it to be a sympathetic character until and unless we have uh, the, the forgiveness... Um, her little speech on forgiveness mm-hmm. uh, at uh, at an AA meeting, which she, she attends a few meetings during the course of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like structurally that's what does it, but then performance wise, like yeah, she just the performer needs to have it. I it it has been a long time since I maybe not a long time, but like probably once or twice a year will I see a perform, and that's that that's iffy. Will I see like a, a performance that indicates like? 
the actor has such a a deep understanding of who this character is mm-hmm. that it's just I can't I cannot separate the two. Like mm-hmm. they just se- it almost seems as though this character just has always lived. Mm-hmm. It, it sound that sounds very abstract, but it's just you know, sometimes you can see, even if you like it, sometimes you can see, like, the machinations of the actor, um, and you can see, oh, this person's doing a good job. I talked about this way back in episode 10 when I talked about the uh, the the different levels of acting that I myself have decided on. Um, and I and at the very top is, is when somebody literally inhabits the character to the point where you don't see the actor anymore. You mm-hmm. only see the character. You never, only after do you think back and, like, yeah, she's not that person. Hmm. She's a different person. Hmm. That person doesn't actually exist. <laughs> uh, and I think Anne Hathaway and, and Rachel getting married is an example of that. But I'd I might agree. be I might be overstating. I'd agree. No, I think yeah. she's I think she's fantastic, and it is it is that kind of part that that could and did mm-hmm. uh, change her in, entire career trajectory because it, it it showed people uh, entirely different. Uh, sphere she could work in, because yeah, she was just she was the happy-go-lucky sweet girl next door, and yeah, now she gets to be now she gets to be uh, Catwoman. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, nobody would have uh, nobody would have assumed that. It's it's not unlike, by the way. Speaking of uh, Christopher Nolan Batman movies, it's not unlike Heath Ledger being in Brokeback Mountain, hmm. where not that not Rachel is not a lot like Catwoman and uh, Ennis is not at all like the Joker, but you suddenly see this actor that is seen as maybe a heartthrob or America's sweetheart or something like that. And, and you're just like, okay, yeah, they're, they're fine, but they're probably, they're they're probably pretty limited. And then you see the performance. You're like, I am, I was way off. Yeah. They have untapped potential and good for this director for seeing it. And then it opens the doorway and you realize this person can do almost anything except host the Oscars. She can't host the Oscars. Well, you know, she had a devil on her shoulder. Um, and it just seemed like the pressure got to her. It really did. Probably. It really did seem like the pressure got to her in addition to James Franco yeah. uh, trying, trying to sabotage. Uh, <laughs> you think he was trying to sabotage? In a sense. I mean, I think he was trying to give an anti, anti-Oscars hosting. I think the pressure got to both of them. She responded with energy and he responded by shutting down. Yeah. Which maybe they, I don't think they actually discussed this, but maybe they thought that that, that dynamic would make for an entertaining thing. Uh, it did not. No, that was funny when you saw their, their mutual response halfway through to adversity. (laughs) And it was just like, so telling like, Oh, she is America's sweetheart. Cause man, she's trying to make us have a good time. Absolutely. I don't blame her for it. I'm just like, F this. Yeah. I'm James Franco. I don't need this. Yeah, I don't need this. I got 35 other jobs to shoot tomorrow. <laughs> um, no, but I, I don't. I don't necessarily blame her for that. I think it's uh, she was uh, there was too much pressure. I don't think the jokes were there, and I don't think the jokes were written with her. The in jokes mind. haven't been there in a long time. That's true. Although I do stand by. Sorry, everybody. The quick tangent. Uh, I do stand by. There was a joke last year that they gave gave Billy Crystal where he said. He was talking about the economic recession, and he's like, and there's no, no better thing than an award ceremony where millionaires give, give each other gold statues. Yeah, that was great. I enjoyed that. I, well, I mean... I like any joke that kind of deflates the Oscars you know, a little bit. Now, within the context of this conversation, I feel like the choosing of Billy Crystal to host the Oscars was sort of 
the Academy's at-large impersonation of James Franco just giving up. Like, <laughs> oh, we're, we admit that we're defeated. Let's, uh, is he alive? Okay, yeah, call it Billy. Yeah, he'll do it. He's not really doing anything else. I don't he mean might, to say that like, his career is tanked. He's doing what he wants to he do. That's fine. He hosted the first Oscars I ever watched at the age of four. He oh, probably, probably did. Yeah. Um, back on, and, so, and uh, uh, Anne Hathaway was rightfully so nominated for uh, mm. Best Actress. Who won that year? That was 2008. She lost to Kate Winslet for The Reader. Oh, yeah. Which she is very good in, but it's more of a supporting performance in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, but if, I mean, there's Germans and Nazis and you got yeah. you got to hand out some statues. Absolutely. Sorry. And well, it was Kate Winslet's turn. I, I use this show to speak my, my worst opinions. Well, that's... That, that's... When Ricky Gervais says it on extras... Oh, did he say that? No. Kate Winslet said it to him. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and then I think a year later, that's that's when she... uh, Yeah, it it works out very well. Um, And she is is very good in it. She's always good. Yeah, she she is a very dependable dependable actress, but I think... But I always think this. I, I very seldom think that the most deserving performance or the most deserving anything actually gets the award. Um, But it's such a weird game to play. Like... Did the most deserving performance even get nominated? Yeah, there's that. Did the that. most diver- deserving performer even get the role in that movie? Like, it's just like, once you start playing that game, it's... Oh, man. I just I just blew a mind. Well, I do think that I am of the opinion that, like, if if there is a performance that is wonderful, like, you cannot imagine somebody else in that role. No. Not unlike uh, Kim in uh-huh. Rachel Getting Married. I cannot imagine... That is Anne Hathaway's role. I yeah. can't imagine anybody else doing that role half as well. I love it when it happens with an actor that you didn't like. Like, mm. it happened to me with uh, a sort of a movie that I, I get in a lot of fights over that I happen to like a lot. Um, the Fountain. I'm getting the name right. Right? The Aronofsky movie? The Fountain, yeah. Uh, the Fountain with, uh, you know, I happen to really like Brad Pitt. I happen to really dislike Wolverine. Uh, what's his name? Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Uh I, I really don't like him, generally speaking. I don't, I don't like his acting, and uh, his smile's just too big. Um, but when you see that movie, I mean, he kills that thing in a way that so surprises you, knowing the rest of his work, mm. that when I'm done with it, uh, the reason I bring up Brad Pitt, he was originally signed on to make that film when it was tw- twice as long a script and was going to have three times the budget. <laughs> uh, and then it went to Hugh Jackman, and... I, I'm a, I get excited about Aronofsky movies. I get excited about an Aronofsky-Brad Pitt collaboration. And so I was really let down when Hugh Jackman got the part. But the, after seeing that movie, it was like, not only am, did I love the movie as is, I'm very glad that it wasn't Brad Pitt in that part. Because hmm. um, he nailed it. I think I like Hugh Jackman. There's no question that he was trained on stage first because mm. he still kind of has those big tendencies but yeah. uh, I liked him in The Prestige and I think he makes a pretty good Wolverine ooh I, can't, I really don't like his Wolverine <laughs> but we, we really digress yeah yeah um, <clears throat> but there's and, and when I think about it aside from th- there's a couple of examples in this film of casting that you would not assume mm. um Rosemary DeWitt, I think, at that point was not well known enough for you to think, "Oh, why would they cast her?" And I think she's great. That's a that's a very difficult role to pull off. Is and you'll see it from time to time the role of the the sibling who has to be supportive. 
even if they are furious at the you know the the offender mm. um and uh and she does it very well and and this idea of you know i'd probably be a little uh angry myself if at my wedding you know if my brother or something like that were to make that toast and make it all about him and just and makes it and and assumes that all eyes are on him it's like well it's my wedding mm. And that and that's me as the groom, like so you know, so much more so the bride. Like this is, you know, for so many people, for so many women, like this is the day they've been waiting for, and now it's being stolen away by my sister, who's made nothing but bad choices, yeah, and incidentally killed our younger brother. Oh uh, yeah, there's you know? that. So, so having to play that while also trying to be trying to take you know the high road be the bigger person like there's a lot of conflict in her performance that i think is wonderful um always nice to see deborah winger she does not work very often yeah man i don't know what's up with that i don't know what's up with it she's great she plays uh she plays their mother uh whose name is abby and she is also a bit responsible uh for the death of the of her son um but she refuses to acknowledge it. She refuses to take responsibility for it. And there's a wonderful uh, fight scene. Yes, I know you probably assume I mean argument. And I do. But it also it comes to blows. It gets physical. Um, there is a stunt coordinator on this movie. You'll see it in the credits. <laughs> he had to, I assume he worked like 45 minutes on yeah, the film? more or less. Um but yeah, and uh, and so the fight between Kim and her mother, where they're basically just throwing blame at each other, and you're on Kim's side because she at least acknowledges what she has done. But at yeah. the same time, she's also you almost get the impression that she's desperately like she almost wants to desperately give the low at least some of the burden to somebody else so that she's not bearing it completely on herself. Yeah, and so it might be something of a selfish exercise, but it is also her acknowledging it's like this is more than just me. Um, you know, you left me in charge knowing full well that I should not have been in charge. Um, and that sort of thing. So, uh, it's a wonderful, very magnetic scene that is again, very difficult to watch the performance that got, of course, uh, Anne Hathaway, but the performance that got me that I, that I wasn't necessarily expecting, but thought was amazing was Bill Irwin. Who's Bill Irwin? Bill Irwin is their father. Oh yeah. He kills it, man. Bill Irwin is primarily a comedic actor. Yeah. And by the way, and very funny. Often a silent comedic actor. Really? Yeah. He specializes in like old-timey Buster Keaton like shtick. Huh. You'll I see him seen in any of that stuff. Oh yeah, he uh he shows up like he's he's done it at a couple of like award ceremonies. Uh if huh. you see um um the the old uh the old video for the Bobby McFerrin song Don't Worry Be Happy. Yeah. He's in it. He's doing doing very like wearing like oversized clothes like uh, like an old timey uh, silent comedy star like that's something he really specializes in is physical comedy. Wow! But he uh, he has shown himself in this to be a wonderful dramatic actor, yeah. and he also has a hard job because he's the guy. Clearly, he sees himself as the one that's going to hold this family together. Yeah, through sheer force of charm and just having a good Smiles. sense of humor about things. Yeah. And so you do need somebody who has a comedic sensibility, um, but also somebody that can play the the heartbreak. You mentioned you know, the more we talk about the actors in this film, I feel like it was really the whole starting point for making this film was let's 
put people in a bunch of jobs they've never done before and see yeah. what happens. And you and you wind up with a film. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> you wind up with a film that feels a little risky. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, because people are taking risks, and that, and I feel like that does come off the screen. There's a real edge to the film. Uh, you mentioned uh, the dishwashing scene. Mm. Um, I'll let you uh, discuss what that scene is. So there's a little. Uh, they're you know getting everything ready, and so a lot of a lot of the film takes place in the kitchen. Um, you know, the party always ends up in the kitchen. It's the day or two leading up to the wedding. And uh, the dad is doing the dishes, and the husband to be there. Somehow, a little challenge comes up, and the uh, the the dad says to the husband to be, "You don't know how to load a dishwasher." And so we get into a little dishwasher loading competition. Yeah, that is which is uh, delightful. It's delightful. It's funny. There's a timer. There's an audience cheering, and uh, and everything's fun, fun, fun until and it's the first revelation that. Uh, the first moment with the family together we get of acknowledgement of this, this, you know, hanging weight of the dead son, mm-hmm. one of the dishes that gets hand handed to the dad. Cause he, he's gloating and he's saying, I need more dishes cause he's already loaded everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's actually, uh, Kim, the Anne Hathaway character who hands him, uh, like the, the dish that the dead son made or ate off of or something. I, I think it was, it either like belonged to him yeah. or maybe he like, uh, or maybe he like painted it in yeah, school something. or something like that. Yeah. And that sort of shuts it all down and all, all of a sudden everybody gets quiet. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of both aspects of that scene, both sort of the party time section and the, you know, where you want to be really close on the dad for this quiet moment. It's as I as I mentioned before. It's a scene that just doesn't you you can't execute it outside of a, a handheld wandering yeah. camera, and uh, yeah, it's one of the best scenes in the movie. And you know, you get the kind of the flip side of that that wandering camera in, in some of the wedding celebration and dancing scenes mm-hmm. of uh, really a member, uh, a guest, a guest of the wedding perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. The scene is, and Bill Irwin just is astounding in that because he is able to play the change. I mean, it's, you know, it's night and day. He's going from being energetic and fun to quite suddenly being faced with the fact that, like, something that he probably wasn't ignoring, but, you know, when you lose somebody, you move on with your life. And it's, you still miss that person, but you're also not necessarily faced with that person's absence all the time. And clearly the 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 dad is getting he's allowing himself to get swept up in the in the fun of everything and then in that moment he is faced with the idea it's like there's one less person at this celebration mm. and and the change i mean he, you know there's a way to telegraph that that feels that could feel very manipulative mm-hmm. and it doesn't it feels totally organic and some of that is probably due to how it, how it is shot. You know, the shop talk, the shop talk for that in acting, oh. uh, the, that 180 degree emotional turn that's not, that's not uh, signaled or premeditated or is organic. Mm-hmm. Uh, shock reaction. Shock reaction. Shock reaction, folks. All right. <laughs> All yeah. right. See, this is why we bring in the, the heavy hitters <laughs> to, to teach a master class on acting. Yeah. Shock reaction. That's right, guys. Jeff Newberg weeds so uh, 
so I think I, I think we we've talked about the the cast in general and, and about the film in general. Um, was there anything else you wanted to wanted to mention before I move on to some of the thematics and then move into the companion film? No, thematic sounds good. Okay. So the big thing, uh, the the big theme of the film is forgiveness. Mm. Um, and there are other movies that have dealt with this. Uh, a few. A hand, you know what? I'm going to say maybe like five tops, um, and one of them is the companion film. <laughs> but uh, but one of the films that, that talks about it, this is not the companion film, but one of the films that talks about it is uh, Magnolia, and the mm-hmm. the fray the the question is posed towards the end: What can we forgive? And Rachel getting married, Kim is responsible, not solely responsible, but she is responsible for the death. Of a little kid, her you know her brother, that is a that is a huge thing. Is that something that can be forgiven? Now, of course, from a Christian standpoint, we say yes, of course, God can forgive you. Other people should forgive you. But it's a hard thing. First off, it's hard for other. Imagine, listener and Jeff, if and me, everyone listening to this. Imagine uh, that someone that you care about is responsible for the death of somebody else that you care about. Like it's it's it, through through negligence and through like bad choices. Like you would all. I feel like it would be almost impossible, not totally impossible, but almost impossible to not see that every time you look at that person. I'm yeah. not saying that that justifies it, but like forgiveness is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Well, I think the question, I think part of the problem, and this is sort of the the the, the dialogue that Christians have with non Christians regularly, is like somebody will ask a question, and the Christian will answer it on idealistic terms, mm-hmm. and the person asking the question is asking it on practical terms, and so like there are two answers to that question, like can we forgive this terrible thing, and the philosophical idealistic answer the Christian gives is yes. But the practical answer is maybe after a couple of decades. Yeah. Like it just, it's not something you can stop saying when you look at that sister for a long, long time and a lot of work. It is. So forgiving other people is one aspect of it, uh, of the film. And then forgiveness of the self is maybe the main aspect um, more so than like her family forgiving her more specifically her sister forgiving her. She clearly, uh, Kim clearly does not forgive herself. Yeah. Um, there's a quote here from, uh, from the film that I wanted to read. Uh, she is talking at a, at a AA or, or NA, NA. NA meeting. Uh, and this is part of a larger monologue, but this is just a little section of it. She says, and I struggle with God so much because I can't forgive myself and I don't really want to right now. I can live with it, but I can't forgive myself. And sometimes I don't want to believe in a God that could forgive me. Now that quote puts two things together from a Christian standpoint. Um, The idea that you cannot forgive yourself because really to forgive yourself is sort of to no longer bear the weight of that. I'll use the term sin. Mm. Uh, and to relieve yourself. And we do, and it's that idea of like the self flagellation. It's like if I whip myself enough times, if I hate myself enough, maybe that will pay for what I've done. But if what you've done is 
kill another person deliberately or, or not deliberately, something as extreme as that, you'll never be able to hate yourself enough. You'll never be able to whip yourself enough. Mm. And so what do you do? And it's worth noting that the characters, you would think that her addiction to various drugs, um, causing the death of her brother would, you know, cause a shock reaction. <laughs> huh? Right. Yeah, you got it. You there you it. go, buddy. Um, so much so that she would run from them forever. Yeah. But that's the thing is like, that is clearly what she uses to make herself feel better before the accident and after like, yeah. and if you're hating yourself so much and it is just a perpetual self punishment, then, and you don't want to, you don't want to feel better by virtue of forgiving yourself, then you have to make yourself feel better elsewhere. And so she winds up falling right back into it. You know, she's in rehab at the beginning of the film and she goes back at the end of the film. Like this is something that is a constant struggle. And we act as though if we punish ourselves enough, then everything will be fine. But chances are you're going to go right back to the thing that you were doing beforehand because that's you're, you're almost in a state of arrested development. Yeah. I, um, I think it's that that scene at, at NA. I, I think it's not just sort of the the. I don't want to give a film like this or really any piece of art a thesis, but it's it's sort of the central, the central matter of the film is not not forgiveness in general, but self forgiveness, mm-hmm. and I think as I alluded to before, in a weird way that. Uh, that Kim doesn't want to forgive herself is what can endear us to, to her in a human way. There's something, uh, as, uh, as wrong as it is, there's something beautiful about admitting, uh, you don't deserve forgiveness and believing it strongly enough to not accept Mm -hmm. forgiveness. Um, uh, some of the closest people in my life uh, have taken this stance with me when I talk to them about faith. Um, and, you know, it's very upsetting when it's someone you know. Uh, and, you know, in the end, it's very selfish. Uh, but I think in, in terms of an hour and a half film, uh, it, served, it served to endear me to the character. Oh, yeah. Where the rest of the time, it's like, I can watch this because it's a good performance and I can be on board because I like the movie, but I didn't care about Kim until then. And you know it's uh, so I'm gonna you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make things real. Yeah, I do guess it. I don't know. So which is to say I'm gonna tell a story from my own life. Um, so uh, <laughs> if you're listening to this, then you might have heard the episode two days ago, as you're listening to this, um, of Battleship Pretension, um, and during that discussion. Uh, when I mentioned that uh, that I was going to be discussing Rachel getting married, uh, my co-host commented that I tend to like movies that explore themes of guilt and forgiveness and shame and self-punishment, uh, which is true. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in that moment, I, I suddenly I was a little bit taken aback um, because uh, there's no question that's true. But part of me is like, is it th- really that obvious? 
<laughs> and because and it is it is something that I that I struggle with. One thing, and I'll I'll bring up an example. Um, so as I mentioned in my uh, testimony episode, when I was younger, I was something of a bully to certain people. Um, people that I thought I thought their lives were better than mine. I thought that they had that they were more fortunate than I was, and so I was going to bring them down a couple of pegs. That was my theory. Um, of course, all I did was hate myself more because that's what happens. Uh, and as time and so I think back on that and I shudder at the hell that I put some of my quote unquote friends through. Uh, and some of these people, by the way, I have gotten back in touch with, and we are on we are on good terms. You've made amends. Slow down. Sorry. Um, we, for all intents and purposes, yes, we made amends. But I, to this day, I have a hard time thinking about that. I have a hard time imagining that this person isn't looking at me and seeing what I did or what I said or, or that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And so like, so though we are on good terms, I don't trust it. And I also feel like I don't deserve it. It's like, no, you need to do more. Like, for example, one of these friends is a missionary. I, I help support him financially. Yeah. yeah. And he has said, and and we're we're very open about what has happened in the past, and so um, and he has said he's like you know that's very generous of you. I was like, yeah, I guess so. I wish I could say I was doing it purely because I'm a supportive person, mm. but this is a sort of penance for me. And uh, and he's like, well, it really shouldn't be. I was like, oh, I know, and it's and I'm going to continue paying, and at some point it might change and it do, and it won't be that anymore and it won't and it will be purely out of supporting what you do and it that's not to imply that that none of it is that now but yeah. there's no question that there is an aspect of wanting to pay for what i've done um and i and i and speaking for myself i know that when you do that when you insist on paying for it yourself that is working towards being blameless because if you've paid off the debt then no one can blame you anymore. And then, and when you're not being blamed anymore, then nobody has any power over you. But if somebody forgives you, if somebody forgives the debt, if you forgive yourself, you did then you wrong. are ostensibly in their debt. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to do. That's how my family works. Is it? Just don't admit you did anything wrong. Oh, just never, never admit you did anything wrong. Yeah, that sounds uh, a little harsh. Uh, or I, maybe, maybe everything goes smoothly as a result. No, no, nothing smooth. Okay, uh, I, I don't know. I think my my family's matured quite a bit in the last couple of years. But, uh, but yeah, that's um, that dynamic of, um, and I don't know. I think you see it. I think it's a huge political thing. Hmm. Like the culture of umbrage of like the last 10 years of demanding an apology from the other side. Oh, yeah. And then the calculus of do I make an apology or do I not, which is more politically expedient and yeah. and which if I didn't do it would be more politically damaging. Um, I Yeah, it's a fascinating strain culturally. 
And it is that, and I think there's a, you speaking culturally, I think there is a very American idea about not being beholden to other people. Mm. And and the the idea of like sort of picking your yourself up by your bootstraps. So like, hey, if you've done something wrong, don't deny it. Take responsibility for it. Pay what you owe, and then move on. But you got to pay what you owe. Yeah. And if somebody just gives you something, well, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You know, come on. Yeah. That you, we've got our pride, and it's like yes, pride is the word for it, but not in the way you mean. <laughs> and so, um, but that's the thing is I don't mean to be glib because there might, there might be somebody who deals with this and they, and they think that I'm being condemning of them. And what I mean to say is that like, it is a, it's very tempting to think about like punishing yourself as being a, a humble act, but it really isn't like when I'm honest with myself, I know that. And when you look at Kim and Rachel getting married, like it is it is an act of putting yourself first and she is perpetually putting herself first she assumes that every that all eyes are on her and it's like well the wedding this is your sister's wedding but you 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 are so consumed with your own badness that you assume other people are as well you literally assume that everybody at this wedding is looking at you mm-hmm. when assumes, that couldn't possibly she's be the true the maid of honor yeah assumes i uh and i think the hope becomes for for Kim is is that you know there's this process oriented uh you know NA and AA you know the 12 steps it's you know very process oriented and i think in that glimpse of hearing her you know confess that she she doesn't want forgiveness and she doesn't want to believe in a, a god who can forgive her i think the 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 process oriented hope is that she will Mm-hmm. A year or two or ten, she will yeah. want that forgiveness, and maybe maybe in her backward way or the backward way a lot of us choose, she'll finally decide she deserves forgiveness. Right. Uh, but well, and it's and that's and that speaks to a couple things. One is that like if her sister is endeavoring to forgive her, then one could say she's already done it. Hmm. Like the. The practicalities of forgiveness so that you you get to a point where you no longer feel that sting of bitterness towards another person, that might take a while. But the fact that you're willing to work towards it means that you're already, like, it's almost like your mind is already there. You you may have moments where you go back to it, Mm. but your mind's like, this is something I need to do and I'm going to work on it. You know, at that point, I think you've already, it's not like the forgiveness is quote unquote done. But it's it it has started, you know. Uh, forgiveness is not done. It's not like begun and over in an, in the instant when that person no longer feels uh, upset at you. Like it's it is a process, as you said. Hmm. Um, but uh, I don't recall the other thing you said. But that's all right. We I got to move on. So um, the companion film, and I we don't have to go into a lot of detail about this because that actually is very similar. Um, the companion film is a movie that I, for a long time, loved, and I still do love it. Um, it was in my uh, top hundred for a long time. Oh, yeah? um, it is called Ironweed. It is directed by Hector Babenko. It is written by William Kennedy, based on his novel. Uh, I don't remember how on earth I saw it when I was. It's very strange when I was younger and just hungry for movies. I would. 
I would just take in anything that looked even mildly interesting to me. Yeah. And so I wind up seeing movies that are, I would say, minor films that people don't really know about. Movies like Mother Night oh, with yeah. Nick Nolte, which yeah. I love. I remember Mother Night. And then, uh, and this was another one, Ironweed. I remember thinking, I remember being like, oh, I, I like Jack Nicholson and uh, this looks interesting. So I gave it a, I gave it a watch. It might have it might have come about from my enjoyment of Tom Waits, uh, him being my favorite musical artist, and and he's in the film as well. So I thought, oh hey, he's in this too. Awesome, Nicholson and Tom There's Waits. Another thematic connection between the films. That's true. Musicians <laughs> acting. Oh, uh, listeners, if you could see the self satisfied smile on Jeff's face right now. Hey, hey, I. Uh, there have been a couple of performances by Tom Waits I liked a lot. This one was fine. Mm-hmm. There have been a couple that I flat out liked. Flat out liked. I love him as Renfield. I think he yeah. makes a very good Renfield. Agreed. Um, I like him in Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Didn't as, see it. As the devil. Didn't see it. Should see it. Um, I've seen a lot of his performances. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they're all basically like a Tom Waits type performance. Yeah. Except for Renfield, mm-hmm. which is... And Renfield's always been one of my favorite characters yeah. uh, of all time. And just to see all the different ways that he can be played. And... Uh, and Waits plays him with a surprising degree of uh, humanity and sympathy. But, uh, so, Ironweed uh, is notable for probably Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep. They are both nominated for it. Um, and I believe, the, I believe the book won a Pulitzer Prize? Yeah, it won something big. It was Nobel yeah. or Pulitzer. It was yeah. one of the biggies. And uh, and I never read the book, but I hear it's wonderful. And uh, and based on what people have told me about the book, it sounds ripe for uh, another adaptation, because there's a lot of stuff in there that I think Hector Babanco felt he could not incorporate into the uh, into the movie. Like there are some fantasy sequences that I think might mm-hmm. work better now with uh, certain types of special effects. Yeah. Um, but it's still a perfectly fine film. Um, so I've seen the film probably four or five times. Uh, you, I think, saw it for the first time. This was my first time. What did you think? Never heard of it. It struck me, for better and for worse, as a movie that could not, would not, and perhaps should not have been made if not for the fact that it was based on an incredibly well-regarded novel. Mm. Um, In so many ways, it seemed half-baked in that way of, oh, they had to excise so much they didn't know what story they were still telling and just like it seemed like it was drawn from incredibly rich source material mm-hmm. without being itself more than almost rich yeah it's one of those things as time has gone on the reason that it dropped out of my top 100 was upon watching it again i recognize it as a as a film it's not perfect there are performances that i love yep. there are characters that i love and a character arc that i love but the film itself doesn't necessarily hang together completely. Yeah. Uh, it, I think it maybe, like I, you, I, it sounded like you said that, like it, it, it feels like it tries to be about too much. Yeah. Um, and if it just locked into this one, into the main character played by Jack Nicholson, which it mostly does, but if it just locked into that instead of tried to show like a general portrait of like homelessness in the thirties, yeah. uh, and just. And and I like Meryl Streep's character as well, but she is a support. She needs to be a supporting character, not a lead. Mm-hmm. And uh, if they had just done that, I think it would have been a much more effective film. But the character's still there, and the arc is still there. Uh, and uh, I'll summarize very very uh, quickly. Uh, it's about 
the homeless people in the in the during the depression and Jack Nicholson plays a character named Francis Phelan who um it's worth noting that his last name is Phelan it's not spelled F A I L I N apostrophe um it's with a ph but uh but still anyway, has the apostrophe at the end though yeah it's very strange i think it's irish so um <laughs> so yeah it's uh so he plays this this guy who not unlike uh, Kim and Rachel getting married, he is a horrible alcoholic, and it has resulted in him, he dropped his son. Oh, that's what they had in common. I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> For the life of me, I couldn't figure out the thematic connection this episode. Oh, man. we should have. You know what? We should have had a meeting beforehand. Yeah, yeah. We should have um, talked about this, huh? And you know what? Here's the thing is, I actually... I actually did not even th- when I when I put the two together I didn't think about that specific connection. Just I thought more about the subs- substance abuse and the guilt. Yeah. And then I was like, "Oh. Oh, wait. Maybe this is maybe I don't want to do this as the companion film cuz it's too too similar." Well, the uh the companion piece I'm working on is also literally about a dead child. Really? Yeah. Okay. So it just it just it's a vicious you know, it's and and I think maybe the reason that that is a uh, a go to thing, like if somebody is responsible for the death of a child, you know, accidentally, but still through their own negligence, something that could have been avoided. Um, I think there's a there's a power to that. You know, the the idea of like an innocent person who could not help themselves uh, getting hurt or killed when somebody's supposed to watch out for them. Like, I think there's something very resonant with that. And so I think other movies, other TV shows will return to that. Well, it's the absolute. It's, it's, the, it's the worst scenario we can yeah. think of. Like, you know, you, the grieving mother at the funeral for the child. It's just she says the same thing every time, whether it's in a movie or in real life. Yeah. No mother should ever have to go through this. No person. Yeah. It's the ultimate sin if you're responsible. Mm-hmm. It's the ultimate test if you're married and it happens to your kid. Yeah. It's the ultimate whatever whatever it is it's the worst thing we can picture damn you chief brody why did you not close the beaches <laughs> mrs kittner is so upset uh, so um that should have been the commanding i didn't know where he was going for a second but then i figured it out yeah it brody brody but uh so yeah so that's the very that's a very specific connection but what i find specifically interesting is that so Francis, you know, he's he's on trains, he's going from town to town, and he's just, you know, looking to looking for shelter where he can get it, uh, getting drunk where he can where he can, and just you know, he's a bum. And uh and then he finds himself back in his hometown. Uh and uh and it's it's revealed surprisingly early what he has done. Mm-hmm. He's at his son's grave and he's, you know, talking to him and all that. Um, but what I find interesting is that he goes back to his old house and his wife is there and she's living a perfectly fine life and his, his, uh, adult kids are there. His adult kids and their kids. Yeah. This life is like, they're getting along just fine at any point. He could come back and gets invited back. He gets invited back. His, his wife has forgiven him. Yeah, that and that was, I don't know about you the first time you were watching it, but this being the first time I was watching it, and just given the age of the actors and, you know, the, the dynamics of the house and, you know, most importantly, the dynamics of this forgiveness, it's sort of like so complete and so assumed from the beginning. You're like, 
Wait, 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 wait. Is, is that his wife whose child also died? Like, I had to look it up. I had to right. go on Wikipedia and make sure I had that straight. Yeah. Because there, there's, this, there's something in you. It's like, wait a minute, did he have a different wife back then? And, and this was his second wife? Yeah. Or is this his sister or something? It's just the, yeah. the, the forgiveness is so... And it's not dealt with. And I felt like this probably had a lot to do with the translation mm-hmm. from novel to film. That forgiveness is just there to such an extent and never even named as forgiveness that it it sort of throws you off. It does. And it's and maybe and that's the thing. It could be seen as a flaw of the film mm. or a flaw in my thinking. Hmm. Like it could be it could yeah. be one of either of those. Right. No, it, it definitely reveals a lot about the way we, we perceive yeah. forgiveness. Like you almost it's just like, how did this scene not start with her slapping him in the face? Yeah. You know, doesn't it just seem like it would start with that? Even even if they move, be- move past it, yeah. it feels like that's what needs to happen first. But clearly she has gotten to a point, because he's probably been gone 20, 30 years. It's been a while. So he's been gone a very long time, and she's like thrilled to see him back. And I, the, the impression that I got, how I was able to sort of square it with myself beyond the idea that forgiveness is a good thing. Because um, for some reason, I have a hard time accepting that. Pro, pro um, forgiveness. But uh, what I took it as, because, you know, he is in basically self-imposed exile. You get the impression that he dropped the kid, kid's dead, I'm gone. I cannot, I can't bear to see the faces of my family who are grieving about what I did. I can't bear to see that. And I don't deserve a good, loving family. Yeah. So he leaves... Um, and what I always took it to mean is that she is now thinking, not only did I lose my baby, I've lost my husband now too. Hmm. And so when he comes back, it's that idea. It's like, I haven't lost my husband. He's here now, but I'm sure she had some anger that she had to deal with. And you see that anger in his kids. Yeah. Um, Michael O'Keefe plays, uh, his son who is upset with, uh, with, uh, not only the dropping of, of the child, but also just leaving. Yeah, and and the, and the the expectation that he can just come back, mm. you know, he seems to take particular uh, umbrage with that, and so, um, but that to me that is the most amazing thing about the film is that at any moment this guy, who is, you know, doing anything he can to get a little bit of food, at any moment he could go and have a great life. Yeah. Any, any of these other homeless people that he hangs out with, they are forced into this. He has chosen this as punishment. Um, and it's worth noting that at the end of the film, he leaves again. Yeah. He stays with his family for a little while, and his, and his wife uh, makes it clear, like, you are always welcome here. There's a place here for you, and he's gone. And it's, uh, it's very sad, but it's, it goes back to what we were talking about, just like the self-punishment, this feeling that maybe if I it's it's almost to a certain extent it's almost like like a self-imposed death penalty except he didn't kill himself yeah but it's was it a fate worse worse than death it's it's not pretty folks right this uh <laughs> this homelessness thing uh i don't know if you so you say you're you're anti-homelessness I, yeah i'm gonna make i'm gonna make those really controversial stands okay. and say i'm pro pro forgiveness pro forgiveness anti-homelessness okay um. Yeah. Uh, 
I think I think that's a strain in it that this is sort of the worst, the worst thing he could come up with, and harder harder yeah. than suicide. Um, like suicide comes up at one point for the Tom Waits character, mm-hmm. uh, who you know at the beginning of the movie he finds out he's got he sh- Tom Waits shows up in uh, new shoes and a new suit, and the explanation is, well he was in the hospital cause he got diagnosed with cancer and he has six months to live. And you know, they, they give you some new clothes on your way out. Uh, and he says, I'm going to kill myself. And Jack Nicholson's, uh, uh, Phelan's response is, uh, you're not, you're not smart. Enough. You don't have the intellect, uh, <laughs> to commit suicide. And I think in, uh, Phelan's case, he has the intellect to know, that this is the worst punishment. Yeah. Um, again, it's not like any of this is dealt with in the film, but I think that's sort of, I think that's hovering. Well, and there's a, there's an exchange. I don't, I don't remember it, uh, completely, but I believe the Tom Waits character makes reference to, he's like, he's like, well, Oh, that's, that's right. He, uh, he's explaining what happened, uh, to his son. He's, a, he's, explaining it to Tom Waits and he's like he fell and he died and then Tom Waits is like well I fall all the time I'm not dead and he says that's what you think yeah and so when you look at it that you know it's a fun little exchange fun isn't the word why did I say that it's a notable exchange but when you and it's kind of become a cliche that people say like ah you're dead and you don't even know it um, to the point where it's you know I remember it being a uh, the punchline in a particularly weird SNL sketch with uh, Steve Buscemi as the Mad Hatter who is literally insane not just quirky whimsical insane and so he ends by saying yeah you're all dead and you don't even know it so so it's it's kind of a punchline at this point but uh, but when you fe- when you take what he said and and work it into how he's living you realize that he's sort of it's sort of living death. Like he's killing himself, like you said, it's sort of like he'd be letting himself off too easy. He'd much rather live in almost hell. Like, I'm basically dead. My life is over. Well, and there's, I mean, you say hell, uh, but more to the point, purgatory. Mm-hmm. A huge, a huge part of this movie is these, uh, these ghosts that haunt uh, Fallon, mm-hmm. uh, these three deaths that he that he caused in, in addition to his kid actually yeah. um, that he caused uh, one way or another justifiable or not uh, throughout his life. And these, these ghost ghostly uh, characters who, you know, he sees when he drinks and just sort of has shouting matches with in front of people that sort of, uh, sort of as soon as somebody thinks that uh, this homeless guy's not so bad, maybe we could clean him up and he'll be fine. Sort of makes them think twice about that because he's <laughs> shouting at a bunch of dead people who aren't there. Yeah, and so it's. Uh, I think it's a it's a very powerful film, as as Jeff said, and I agree with. Uh, it's not perfect, but it really does speak to a lot of what we're talking about, and it mm. it, it talks about the idea of of self forgiveness, um, uh, almost exclusively. I mean, he deals with his kids a lot, but they're not really developed as characters the way uh, what Rachel else is. Babanko done. He did another film with Tom Waits uh, called At Play in the Fields of the Lord. I've heard of that. I haven't seen that. He might have done, I don't know, he might have done Kiss of the Spider Woman. Oh, yeah? Huh. I think so. I have not looked it up, but I, because I know he did something very notable that sort of, it didn't necessarily kick off his career, but like he he did 
movies in rapid succession. I think that's what started it, but uh, don't quote me on that. So sorry about that. Um, but yeah, and so uh, so I did want to, and, and we've already sort of talked about it. So I think we can start wrapping up the episode. But just this idea of you know how you forgive yourself and how that plays into the idea of God's forgiveness of you. Like I. Hmm. I wrote down this uh, this quote here. Uh, it's not a quote. It's a verse. Sorry. Um, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. Amen. Amen. Easy to say, though. Yeah. But it, it's, it's a hard thing to live out for people that have done wrong to you or when it comes to dealing with yourself. Um, it's one of those things that... And I, I apologize if this comes off as too cynical, but like... It's one of those things, it sounds good, and you know it to be true, but you, it's, it's very difficult to implement. Well, the reason I... Look, I think uh, the vast majority of the Bible is very difficult to implement. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you take the, the craziness out of what Jesus said, you're doing him a great disservice, just the extremity of the things he demands of us. Um, but this verse never gave me that particular trouble, just because... It, it seems in the text, and even when it's taken kind of out of context as, as one verse, uh, this is the ultimate perspective. Like, sure, this should apply to my human relations as well, but the ultimate perspective of, okay, well, if I'm condemned here in this life, in the absolute sense, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. And in context, you need this verse. I mean, mm-hmm. chapter 7 is hard uh truths and it's it's it comes as a breath of fresh air mm-hmm. to get this verse um as as to me it does in life but for you it's just kind of been a a thorn well and it, almost any any bible verse having to deal with with forgiveness yeah i know it i accept it but it just it might be it might be a function of feelings, which it, which can always be a problem. It's like it just doesn't it doesn't have any impact on my feelings, and it doesn't you know. For example, um, the 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 example I used earlier about that friend of mine that I that I bullied, like it doesn't keep me from when I think back on that, just shuddering, and just feeling like he is still thinking about it and God is still thinking about it. Um, you know, I've mentioned on the show before that I, uh, you know, have struggled with, uh, you know, like porn addiction. And I knew that like, and, and, you know, some of that was during my marriage and I had, I had a, uh, this feeling that like, you know, like if Jen was out of town or something and then I engaged in uh, that activity that like, like her plane would go down on the way back or, or just like something would need to happen there needed to be some kind of physical consequence. Otherwise it's just sitting out there. The, that sin that I committed is just sitting out there. Well, I mean, there was a physical consequence here. You know, (laughs) your crazy guilt is one consequence. And that's the thing is that's, you know, and that might be something that I'm, that I'm playing up myself, not unlike Kim or Mm -hmm. Francis, you know, just, it's like, okay, well, there was no physical consequence, so I will have to create it. Yeah. And it's very, you know, and it's, but what I do to, so that I don't kill myself or become homeless uh, with the things that I've done, not that I've murdered anybody, but uh, 
uh, none of these characters murdered anybody, but right. uh, somebody right. died. Um, you know, what I do, I, I have to just remind myself over and over, not unlike what we were talking about, just when, when somebody is forgiving somebody else, which we are called to do, by the way, that's the other thing, is if somebody has wronged you, we, we need to try to forgive them. Um, and before I go further into that, there is, I think, a definition of forgiveness that I like a lot, uh, and it's by C.S. Lewis, and um, he says, there is all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology. I will never hold it against you, and everything between us two will be exactly as it was before. If one was not really to blame, then there is nothing to forgive. In that sense, forgiveness and excusing are almost opposites. And I think a lot of people think that... Ex- that I think people confuse those two. Like, forgiveness... It doesn't say, hey, it's like it never happened. It's saying, it did happen, but... I still love you and I'm going to love you as much as I ever have. Maybe even more so because you asked, but, uh, and also by the way, you don't necessarily have to wait for somebody to ask for forgiveness to extend it. So, um, I don't know. You know what? Maybe I shouldn't have breezed over that. That's a big point. It's well, it's huge. A lot of people disagree with that statement. A lot of Christian theologians of the, uh, the conservative stripe Hmm. disagree with that statement. Believe that it is wrong. To forgive you somebody? To forgive someone who hasn't repented and asked. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's nuts. I hey, don't agree with that. Neither, nor do I. You know. Nor do I. I think I'm generally very conservative in my theology, but I think, you know, it's like, you know, what does conservative mean? So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, I feel like conservative means not adding random ideas to the Bible. Like, for example, that. But yeah. that's me. Um. But yeah, and so like, so recognizing, you know, and I think maybe that's why people have a hard time forgiving other people or themselves or accepting God's forgiveness is they feel like if forgive and forget, that's what people say, forgive and forget. It's like, I can't forget that. It's like, well, you don't have to necessarily forget it, (laughs) but you forget or you, or you try to remove the pain that it that it caused you, you can still feel it, but like, and these, and you forget the sense of retribution that you might want to feel. Yeah. Well, I think the problem with that whole forgive and forget thing is always that they're, they're opposites. Forgiveness is an active process and forgetting is the most passive process. Like mentally I can think of nobody like generally speaking, one doesn't forget intentionally. Right. Um, and yeah, I think the power of forgiveness is that you, Oh, you, you do remember, you do remember the wrong and you choose not to exact punishment either passive or active punishment. You're not, you're not going to, you're not going to seek legal retribution, but you're also not going to seek to make that person feel terrible every time they're in your presence. Right. Um, yeah. And we've talked about it on the show before, but the, uh, the idea of not forgiving somebody else, and that's something that we've, we've. We've gone into more detail about about that, but when you know when you don't forgive somebody, what you're basically saying is, I could never do what that person did, mm. and anybody is capable of anything. And so, if that makes forgiveness easier, so be it. But um, and I and that's the thing is, I feel like I'm I'm speaking very abstractly, but that uh, forgiveness is something of an abstract concept that you have to make real, mm. and that's maybe one of the things that makes it so difficult. But uh, 
But yeah, so I guess to sum up, when it comes to like the forgiveness of the self and to accept God's forgiveness, you know, I mean, she specifically says in Rachel Getting Married, I don't want to believe in a God that would forgive me. Like that is a bleak statement. She's not merely saying, I don't forgive myself. She does say that, but she that's not all she says. She says, the idea of a supreme being that loves us so much that he does not want to hold this stuff against us. I, I don't want that. Mm. I want this to be held against me. I want to be punished. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very bleak, but it can be very liberating. I still have a hard time with it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I do something wrong, when I judge somebody, when I, you know, when I tell a lie or, or whatever, there's part of me that's just like, oh, that's so terrible. I'm just, it's awful. And, but then it's just like, you confess it, you ask God to forgive you. No. And then he has. There might be something that you need to do. Like if you lie to somebody, that might mean you have to go. That might mean you have to go and tell them the truth. Like there still are practical earthly consequences. But in a spiritual sense, like God has said, He's going to do it. God tends not to lie, <laughs> and and that can sort of give you permission not to hold it against yourself. Recognizing you're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. You're going to make mistakes, and if God can live with it. A purely holy being than you can as well. Right. And I think for a Christian, that's a really effective argument. Like if you've decided that you believe in, in this God, you can trust his judgment mm-hmm. about what you quote deserve more than your own. Um, you know, you might still instinctually want punishment, but if you trust that, you know, this God enough, uh, you can accept his decision to forgive you that's a good that's a great way of phrasing it just like accept accepting that is like the final word on the matter that's that it's like the it's like the bracelets wwjd it's like it's like oh i've done this terrible thing what would jesus do it's like well he probably wouldn't have done what you did (laughs) so there's that and i think people probably focus on that and get angry it's like but then he would forgive me Mm -hmm. and so if he would forgive me i will forgive me Mm -hmm. you know and it's a hard thing to do, but that's, I, I know because I still have, I still have a hard time doing it, but it's what we're supposed to do because, you know, when you're, when you're only ever focused on the things that you've done, then chances are you're not that focused on the things that God has done for you. Hmm. So anyway, uh, I think we're going to wrap up there. Um, it seems like a good place. Yeah. Yeah. It's not bad. Sure. Um, Jeff, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. Where, uh, where can people find you online? Uh, I think my site is linked on the IMDb page, which okay. is probably like the first thing you'd find. And but if you want to go directly to my site is under construction, so right now it's just kind of a place to see a few clips of stuff I've done and and a couple of links here and there. But it's at jeffnewberg.tumblr.com. Um, soon I'll be shooting a feature, and I think they're going to be doing a lot of like social media stuff for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the feature, the trailer to that feature is linked at that site. The the feature is called Squatter. It's a horror film. Okay. Um, and I think they'll be doing a lot of social media stuff for that. Where if you if you're so inclined, you can follow the follow the production of that film. Um, and uh, you know, you can even, even give us money if you want. It's a it's a film made by Christians and has primarily been financed and supported by uh, churches and Christians and uh, hmm. yeah, that kind of thing. Interesting. So, and then Christian horror second, movie. Yeah, man. Hey, man. It's a genre that admits that that 
that presupposes the existence of good and evil. Fine and, with me. And that's when a when a horror movie's good, man, it's good. I've read Frank Peretti. I know how it goes. That's right. Yeah, that's that's what we're going for. <laughs> um and then Weeds is in September for yep. the two percent of you who have showtime. Uh but uh you know I'm around. You can just catch me at the coffee bean if you wanna Oh wait. Um yeah. You are on Twitter? I am. I do. I do the tweets. So okay. you can you can find me my incredibly funny funny sentences <laughs> on Twitter. Now, uh just to make sure, I'm sorry. Newberg is spelled U R G. U R G, not E R G. That's right. So, all right, uh and then you can go to uh, morethanonelesson.com for uh show notes, sermon recommendations and the occasional blog. Um Please do go and uh, take that survey. I would really appreciate it. I'll probably have it up for the next couple of weeks. Um, you can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com if you have any questions or concerns or thoughts about this or other episodes. You can follow me on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash morelessons. There's also a Facebook group that you can join and uh, have discussions with uh, with other listeners. Sorry, listeners. I got to get back into that. Sorry. Um, But yeah, uh, Jeff, thanks once again for being here. Thanks, man. And thank you guys for listening, and I'll get you next time. Bye.